fly around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop 'em black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table, a show that is dedicated to the people of our Appalachian region who produce, prepare, and preserve our local foods and agricultural products. This is your hostess, Amy Campbell. Our theme song was graciously sung, arranged, and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee. We are super proud of this talented 14-year-old Tennessee talent. And this morning, we are setting the table with cast iron and cornbread, two staples of the Appalachian table. My guest is Katie Hoffman, and she and her husband go around rescuing and rehabbing cast iron skillets and pans. She's also going to share an old-time cornbread recipe and describe the corn that they themselves raise and grind. And also, we're joined by Fred Sossman from Johnson City, Tennessee, with his Potluck Radio segment, where we get to hear the voice of Larry Prophet, who is the owner of Ridgewood Barbecue in Bluff City, Tennessee, describe how that blue cheese dressing that they serve up there became its own standalone appetizer. We are just so happy to have your good company this morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now let's get started. Katie Hoffman is a powerful, sassy, storytelling-educated woman. She lives outside of Jonesboro, Tennessee, and has a business called AppleWorks, and her tagline is Making Arts and Cultural Heritage Work for Appalachia. Some of her services that she engages in are educational programs, consulting, oral history, research writing, and grant writing, and some of her clients include the Crooked Road, Birthplace of Country Music Museum, and Create Appalachia. She was also one of the people heavily involved in the work that it took to create the Encyclopedia of Appalachia. She's also a ballad singer, a former English teacher at Tusculum College up in Greenville, Tennessee, and this lady knows how to grow food, cook food, save seed, and she preserves old-time Appalachian ways. And if that isn't enough to be doing, she and her husband also run this offshoot business that they call Vintage Kitchen Cast Iron and Collectibles, and they set up all over the region at select dates and host what they call cast iron clinics. So let's join Katie now and hear about these cast iron clinics and how they help people refinish and season their own cast iron and how they help suit the right person with the right pan. What can people expect from a cast iron clinic? When we sat down to design the first one, 
we wrote down all the questions that people asked us most often. And we decided that that would probably be a good place to start. And we noticed that there were an awful lot of people who also would say, well, I have my grandmother's pan, but it's got all this stuff on the outside of it, and I don't know how to clean it. So we thought, let's make a clinic instead of just a presentation so that people who just want to come ask questions can do that, but people who want to bring their cast iron can bring it, and we can tell them how to clean it up or how to maintain it if that's their question or whether it's worth anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So usually what we do is we spend about 10 minutes talking to people about how to choose the best piece of cast iron or pieces of cast iron for how they cook. Mm -hmm. And we talk about what kind of stove they have because that makes a little bit of a difference. And we talk about what kind of foods they cook. And we go through a whole list of questions that help people understand what their probably looking for Uh Um, and then the second part of it is about maintaining it once you have it because Mm. it's not that hard but it is different from what a lot of people are used to in terms of taking care of say stainless steel or other kinds of pans so um, we kind of feel like it's a good thing to give people the basics of how to maintain your cast iron because a lot of people are just real threatened by it Mm -hmm. and it's easy if you just know you know, so that's what we do. And then we leave lots of time for questions so that if people have particular questions, we try as hard as we can to get to everybody's questions. But because we can't always do that, we try to schedule our clinics at a space and in a time when there's time beforehand and there's time after so that if people still have questions they can talk to us one-on-one or if they brought a piece of cast iron and we haven't been able to talk about it in the context of the clinic we can talk to them about it individually and sometimes those pans end up going home with us to get the get the spa treatment I guess I'll call it (laughs) well I guess so and so that's the service y'all do too if if people Mm -hmm. have a have one they just don't have time or expertise you can just fix them up yeah those people for who for some reason Mm -hmm. don't want to have a big tub of lye water sitting somewhere in their house or (laughs) don't want to have a big garbage can with an electrolysis set up in it like we have three of in our garage I keep telling Brett he's like the mad scientist you know (laughs) all these things bubbling up in the in the basement but um you know people who don't want to go to that much trouble will ask us to do it for them and that wasn't something we anticipated doing but there was a demand for it and when we have the time we'll take in pans and get them back to people looking good kind of like pan rehab cast iron rehab (laughs) it is (laughs) well good it is that's a real needed thing for all of us that have inherited our grandmothers or great grandmothers Mm -hmm. and there's crud all over the outside and Mm -hmm. maybe they don't have a good finish on them anymore that's that's so good or a little bit of light rust People think rust is so terrible, and sometimes it is. It'll pit the surface, but sometimes if it's just a little light coating, if there's just a little light coating of it, you can just get that right off, and your pan will look beautiful again. And Brett knows how to do it, and he's also way more meticulous about things than I am, which is why I'm the mouth, and he's the the (laughs) artisan. He's the one who brings them back to life. What a good combo. Well, you and Brett being your husband, and the two of y'all make a dream team in terms of a lot of things, but also what we're talking about today is getting this cast iron bought and fixed and clinicked. Well, that's part of the fun. I mean, we love going out and finding it 
and finding some piece that needs a little love and taking it home. And it's just so satisfying. And the fact that we get to do it together is really great. You know, I mean, we get to do something we enjoy and then other people get to benefit from it too. So we're, we're kind of excited that we ran up on this idea and, and ran with it and that we get to spend time together doing something fun and something worthwhile. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and my guest today is Dr. Katie Hoffman. She and her husband, Brett Tiller, are the two behind the small business called Cast Iron Kitchen and Collectibles, and their pop-up events that they call Cast Iron Clinics. They make their home outside of Jonesboro, Tennessee, and they do not advertise on this show, but they truly are unique individuals, and they're doing their part to preserve old-time Appalachian foodways. Up next, Katie's going to tell us about her father-in-law, Neil Tiller. This man has preserved old-time Appalachian foodways for generations, and he's been saving Boone County white corn seed. And for generations, Neil has raised this corn, shared this corn seed, and shared the cornmeal with all of his friends and neighbors. And uh, Katie's going to let us know how they take the corn and prepare it for cornmeal right now. Well, Katie, you just mentioned Brett, your husband, and you have told me before how much you think of his daddy, Neil. Yes. Can you describe him and his corn and what all y'all do? (laughs) Sure. Neil is a character, and it's pretty sad, and it's not a secret that he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and so he's not able to do some of the things that he used to do. He's a lot quieter than he used to be, but I'm going to talk about him in the in the past because the things that I'm going to tell you about are the things that I learned from him when I first uh, started dating Brett and and visiting the Tiller farm. Neil is a character. Uh, He loves to tell a story. He's got very strong opinions. Um, He loves tradition. And, you know, he's a contractor, and I used to ask him why he was so committed to growing his own corn and grinding it into meal and saving a steer every year and killing it and butchering it himself, well, as a family. I said, you could afford to go to the store and buy your food. And he said, yes, but this is how my daddy did it and how my granddaddy did it and my mom. And he said, I love the tradition. And he said, and the store-bought food just doesn't taste as good. So... He he was a really interesting character to me because I didn't grow up in that tradition, but I sort of agreed with those values. Mm-hmm. And so to use his own term, I dragged out his tracks, uh, following him around and, and learning about these things. And uh, one of the first things was the corn that he grows and that we grow now, uh, Boone County White, which is an heirloom corn that his family grew when he was growing up and ground into their cornmeal. Um we grow the corn and when you hear about the grain being as high as an elephant's eye boone county white fits the bill because the stalks are about 15 feet tall oh man they're so tall that you can't reach the ears without either a step ladder or just knocking down the stalk so you can pull the ears off and uh, Neil would grow these big patches of Boone County white every year, and we'd go out and cut the stalks down and pull the ears off and shuck them and put them in the, the corn crib. And he still has a corn crib, 
and they would sit there drying out all winter. Um, then we'd go in in the spring and nub the corn. Do you know what nubbing the corn is? I have an idea, but I want you to tell us. All right. You take an old cob and you look at the ear of corn that you've got in your hand, and if there are any little brown or rotty kernels in it, you take that cob and push them out so that all you have are the good kernels left on the ear of corn, and then you take it and throw it into a bucket next to you. And once you've nubbed all the corn, you've gotten all the rotten kernels or the spoiled kernels out of it. And it's dry. The kernels are real hard, and and it can be kind of hard. Sometimes you have to get your pocket knife out and nub them, too. But after you've got all your ears cleaned off, and they're in five-gallon buckets, you know, in the middle of a group of however many people are nubbing corn, um, as many as you can round up. And so you got your nubbed corn, five-gallon buckets. And then in that same room where the corn crib is, there's a hand sheller, which is this tall, skinny kind of piece of equipment that um, has a hand crank on it. And one of you turns that crank as fast as you can, and the other person takes a bucket of the corn ears, and you throw it pointy end first into the mouth of the corn sheller, and it makes this enormous racket. And you put a bucket underneath the sheller because there's a chute that all the little loose kernels come rattling out of into the bucket and on the other end the naked corn cob gets spit out into a sack and that gets used for kindling later because you don't waste anything at the tiller house if you can help it (laughs) so then you have your buckets of kernels and you take them next door to his mill room He's got an old electric mill from, I think, from the 1930s that he found at an auction, and it didn't run, and he took some chewing gum and masking tape and a couple paper clips and his um, hillbilly penchant for being able to fix anything, and he got it running, and um, they've used it for years to grind this meal. And if you look inside it, every year he takes them out, but there are two little millstones that look like real the big large ones that used to be in the mills mm-hmm. um, that ground corn like by a creek or whatever and you can set it however you want oh. using those stones to get the right texture and he likes his meal coarse so that's what that we use to make our cornbread mm-hmm. and it doesn't taste like any store-bought cornmeal you ever had oh and there's one rule that you have to keep in mind and this comes straight from neil tiller yeller cornmeal is for critters. White cornmeal is for people. Now write that down and don't forget it. I love how reverent you are about your uh, father-in-law and I, I appreciate so much how you're preserving his ways. Well, he and my mother-in-law have taught me a lot. And my, my mother-in-law, Martha, passed away on Thanksgiving 2016. Um, but she's the person who taught me how to make butter. And she used to just shake her head at me and laugh and say, you know, I grew up a sharecropper's child, and the minute I didn't have to make butter anymore, I ran as fast as I could in the other direction. And she (laughs) said, here you are, this professional woman, and you're asking me to help you learn to make it. But she she did. She was was a lot quieter than Neil, but she was another person who um, carried on a lot of the traditions because it was important to him and also because it was important to her. And I brought you some butter. You did not. Thank you. It's Sayer butter. 
Oh, wonderful. It's For people who don't know what that is, it's sour butter. It's cultured butter because you have to let it culture before you churn it. But I brought you some sour butter. You sweet thing. Thank you. You're welcome. Not to mention a bag full of peppers. Thank you, Katie. So let's take us a little break and hear from our wonderful sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to hear back from you and um, have you share your cornbread recipe with us using this corn. I will be happy to. Thank you. Support for the Tennessee Farm Table is brought to you in part by Century Harvest Farms and Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. A sustainable farm in East Tennessee producing 100% grass-fed beef and other wholesome farm products. Preservative-free grass-fed charcuterie, preserves, pickles, and jams. Also home to the community-serving, food-insecurity-fighting Century Harvest Farms Foundation. Details at centuryharvest.com. You're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and our guest is Katie Hoffman. She's going to share with us now how the Tiller family likes to make their cornbread with this Boone County white corn. Following that, we have Fred Saussman in his Potluck Radio segment, where he features Larry Prophet, who is the owner of Ridgewood Barbecue, on the subject of the blue cheese dressing appetizer that they serve at the Ridgewood Barbecue in Bluff City, Tennessee. Are you kind enough to share your cornbread recipe with us? Absolutely, because everybody needs to know how to make good cornbread. Yes, ma'am. What tillers call making cornbread the right way. Are you ready? (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Okay. On an evening when you're making a big pot of soup beans and they're almost ready, You have to find your cornbread skillet, and it has to be a designated cornbread skillet. I found this out the hard way. That's another story. I once used the cornbread skillet for something else, and I never did it again. (laughs) Now, in our house, that's a number five skillet. It's eight inches across, and it makes just enough cornbread for two people if you want to have some leftovers when you warm the beans up again, which of course you're gonna do, right? So you pull a bag of cornmeal out of the freezer, and you move your oven rack up to the top level, okay? Okay. Because if you put it on the bottom, the cornbread will sometimes burn because of the way you make it, because of the way the tillers make it. And you preheat your oven to 475 degrees. And I have to say, even though I'm kind of kidding about it, it, it makes the best cornbread I've ever had. So you take that skillet and you put a big wad of bacon grease in the bottom of the skillet. You put it in the oven while it's preheating. And you let that grease heat up until it's smoking. So it needs, when you pull it out and you look at it, it needs to have little trails of smoke coming up off of it. While you're heating it and getting it to that point, you mix up your batter, which is really easy. You take a cup and a half of cornmeal, and then you mix it with a teaspoon and a half of baking powder and a quarter teaspoon of baking soda. And no sugar. Ever. Write that down. Don't forget it. No sugar. Now listen, if you put sugar in this cornmeal, bad things are going to happen. I have heard from the tillers that if anybody comes within two feet of this cornmeal with sugar, it spontaneously combusts. (laughs) Now I like you, Amy, which is why I gave you the cornmeal, and I don't want anything bad to happen to you, and people would miss your sweet voice on the radio while you recovered from the explosion, so please do not put sugar in in this cornmeal. While we're at it, no eggs either. You don't need them. You promise? Oh, yes. No eggs. Well, okay. okay. All right. 
So all you do is take these dry ingredients and take a whisk and combine them real well. And then you get your buttermilk out. Now, if you don't make your own buttermilk, and we do, and I brought you some of that too. Oh my. You, you use your own buttermilk, and the baking soda helps take the edge off of it because sometimes uh, homemade buttermilk has a bit more whang than what you buy at the store. <laughs> when I can't use my own buttermilk, I try to use like a really high-quality one like Cruise Farms or whole buttermilk. Um, and you just mix enough into that cornmeal mixture to make a paste. Now, if you like it mushy, put a little more buttermilk in there. And if you like it dry... Do it just so it comes together. And usually it takes a couple batches to kind of figure out where you like it. By this time, your grease should be good and hot. Hot enough to be smoking like I talked about. So you pull the skillet out of the oven and you pour the batter in and it makes the most wonderful sound. It sizzles and pops. And that's how you know it's going to have that amazing, gorgeous brown crust on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Which is my favorite part of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And you just take a... A wooden spoon and kind of level the batter out a little bit and put it back in the oven and watch it and it usually takes about 15 or 20 minutes and when the when it's brown around the edges and kind of getting golden toward the middle that's when you pull it out Um, that's how you make cornbread what the tillers like to call the right way well there's one other rule that Neil and Martha have taught me if you grow something and you make something You grow more than you need, and you share it because it always tastes better if you share it with people you love. So here you go. Katie, thank you. You're welcome. Katie, thank you again for making the drive down here to Knoxville and talking with us here today. Well, you are so welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I brought you some homemade butter, too. You did not. Here it is. It's in four-ounce pieces, so you don't have to... Like, if it calls for a stick of butter, just use that. Now, it's tangy, okay? So, now you have almost everything you need, but here is also some of our homemade sorghum molasses. Katie, this is like... And you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and you've just heard from Katie Hoffman of Appleworks and Vintage Kitchen Cast Iron and Collectibles. And we heard all about their cast iron clinics, cornmeal, and... She broke down her cornbread recipe for us. More information about Katie at Appleworks, that's A-P-P-A-L-Works.com, and on Facebook for the Cast Iron at Vintage Kitchen Cast Iron and Collectibles. And links to all of my show's guests, like Katie and Fred Sossman, are always listed on my website, TennesseeFarmTable.com, under that link that says Listen to the Show. And next, we get to hear from Fred Sossman with his Potluck Radio segment with Larry Prophet from Ridgewood Barbecue of Bluff City, Tennessee, on the topic of their unique appetizer, the blue cheese dressing with crackers. For Potluck Radio, I'm Fred Sossman. Ridgewood Barbecue in Bluff City, Tennessee is known for its fresh hams, smoked for nine hours over hickory wood. But many of the 70-year-old restaurant's customers are equally devoted to its blue cheese dressing. Larry Prophet is the second-generation owner of Ridgewood. I like blue cheese, and my daddy's recipe was the one that was always 
the best. You couldn't you couldn't buy anything that was really good. Sometimes you'd go to a restaurant and you'd find one that was a really good taste and stuff, but you couldn't buy it. Blue cheese dressing was once listed on the Ridgewood menu as Roquefort, and the word was in parentheses. But the French name got dropped, the parentheses fell by the wayside, and the salad greens disappeared. Blue cheese dressing comes to the table in a bowl, surrounded by saltine crackers. The customers wanted, demanded it. They said, give us a little of this for an appetizer. Give us the blue cheese without the salad. Take that cracker right there. Now put all that stuff that you can get on that and stick the whole thing in your mouth now. A lot of people say, I think I've got the recipe. And I say, well, that's good. He said, but it's just a little bit different. I said, well, not, not many people are going to buy a five-pound block of blue cheese, a big round hoop. One of these vendors says, we caught some that's cheaper. You can try it. It's just as good. And they cut it up. And the young man there at Ridgewood said, try this. I said, provolone. I said, take that stuff down yonder at the dumpster right quick before some fool makes that up into blue cheese. If you get into real blue cheese, you know it. It'll clear your sinuses. For Potluck Radio, I'm Fred Saussman. This is Doug Walker of Walker Family Farms, and you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. And Doug, where's that Walker Family Farms located? It's located in Mount Vernon, Tennessee. Good deal. Well, how about Miss Janie? Can you say too? This is Janie Walker. I'm the farmer's wife of Walker Family Farm. And we set up at Telco Plains Farmer's Market Saturdays and Wednesdays, April through October. Then you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.